Thank you to Victoria for reading our passage for us yet again. So here we are in 1 Timothy chapter 6, pulling together the end of this book. And I wonder, how excited are you to get back to your favourite restaurant once lockdown lifts? I wonder if you think of your favourite restaurant or have you ever walked into somewhere, you've looked at a menu and you've thought, my goodness, I could eat anything on this. And you've almost been half tempted to order everything so that you can try a little bit of everything sometimes. Well, this passage is a little bit like that for me. You read through this passage and there is such richness. There is so many things that we could pull out of this that I could spend weeks and weeks and weeks in this chapter. So what I want to do is I want to pull out two main points. I'm going to open up and start with uh, by addressing the first two verses. Then I want to fire into our main couple of points. I just want to reread our first couple of verses for us. They read, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters of what, as worthy of all honour, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the grounds that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good and service are believers and beloved. As we read this chapter, these two verses look a little bit out of place for us, and they kind of are, because they fit more with the end of uh, chapter 5 that we looked at last week. We kind of ran out of time last week, we didn't quite get round to it. Um, but we think of the examples we looked at last time of those in the church, our, our spiritual father and mothers, those that were to treat as our, our siblings. And we looked at the widows, we looked at the example to Timothy. And this is kind of the next example that is given that concludes this section, uh, which is talking about bond servants or slaves. And I kind of wanted to sidestep a second when we come to this topic, because there is a question that is being asked an awful lot at the minute, is, is talk of racism, of slavery, of statues, of everything in, in that vein is being spoken about a lot. Is, is the Bible okay with slavery. You read these couple of verses and you think, why is Paul not calling it out here? And I want to answer that question. So is slavery okay? And the answer very simply by a biblical standard is slavery was wrong then and slavery is wrong now. Did you know that there's an estimated 40 million slaves in the world just now? I imagine that number is actually far, far higher. A number that is utterly unacceptable. A number that is so full uh, of the sex trafficking industry and all sorts of things that are utterly vile and evil. If you want to check out a great organisation, have a look at the International Justice Mission who are fighting in some of the hardest places uh, against uh, slavery and exploitation. They're doing a great work. So what is it in these first two verses that we're being taught here? Because essentially what's being shown here is submit to authority. But what's interesting is by submitting to authority, that doesn't imply that the authority is morally acceptable. Do I, or do you, believe that the Scottish or the British government are absolutely morally correct? If you're answering yes, try and do it with a smile. No, we don't. Our governments are not absolutely morally correct, but we submit to their authority because that is what we are taught to do, to live godly and peaceful lives. But we're taught, the, the biblical principle we find in Philippians 2 primarily, is that this feeling of superiority 
that comes with slavery is absolutely a sin. And the abolishment of slavery is not only permissible by biblical standards, but actually it is demanded by biblical principle. And you know what should tear this apart comes from the very beginning in Genesis. What should ultimately abolish any form of slavery, any form of idea that one man can own another? That is very simply that all men and women are made in the image of God. So inherently there is a value placed on every life because they are made within the image of God. The Bible often condemns the means by which slaves were taken. In the first century, slavery wasn't a race-based thing like it would be when we think of the American South. But people were taken through lots of things, whether it be war, eh, piracy, robbery, eh, as a punishment. There's all sorts of things. And kidnapping was, was the main issue around this. All of these things involved some form of kidnapping. Eh, Timothy tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1.10 that kidnapping or man-stealing is against God's law. Exodus 21.16 Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Written into the law that it is unacceptable for a man to be stolen and sold because people are not property because people have a value. The issue was slave owners were often more bothered about the profits and the lining of their own pockets than they were for the welfare of their slaves. And Paul addresses a lot of that attitude in Ephesians chapter 6. But you know, there is a difference between the relationship and a bond servant, uh, and a slave in this context, than what we would see or think of in somewhere like the American Deep South. It is reckoned that up to 50% of the Roman Empire were slaves, and it was not acceptable, but for many it was the only way they would have any form of stability or income during that time and for us the relation and what we pull out of this the the understanding for us comes primarily from an employer or an employee relationship many within the roman empire were educated and cultured people and really what this seeks to address the problem not the problem but the issue that was here was there was this social class that was built but as soon as people walked into church the slave and the master were absolutely equal they were one in Christ so socially they were very far away but in church united in Christ they were they were one they were together and for a slave to rebel against an unsaved master would bring disgrace to the gospel the name of God would be blasphemed Romans 2 24 but likewise Paul calls for slave owners not to be harsh but to to teach them that they will be held accountable one day to the heavenly master and this is one of the main reasons why Paul and the early missionaries didn't go around preaching about the sinful institution of slavery because it would have brandished the church this militant group that were trying to undermine social order and the progress of the gospel would have been greatly hindered very simply those words of Galatians 3.28 there is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free there is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are one people united in Christ. So very simply, there is an inherent value in every life 
in this planet that is equal in the eyes of God. May we treat every person, whether a boss, an employee, a neighbour, a stranger, whoever it may be, with the love that they deserve to be shown because they are made in the image of Christ. Slavery is sinful. Racism is sinful. There are so many sinful issues in this world. The only answer to any of these problems is the gospel of Christ Jesus. The only answer to any sinful issue is the message that there is restoration and reconciliation available through him. I want to now put that to one side and I want to focus on the main two things I want to have a little look at this morning. Flee sin, pursue God. The context of this, the way this is written, is very much with a military feel. Fight the good fight. I charge you in the presence of God. There are many different words in here that are given as that sort of charge, that are given as kind of definitive commands. And I guess the question from here that, he, that he's posing to Timothy is are we taking the charges and instructions of God seriously? Because 1 Timothy 6 lays it on thick and fast for us. There is a lot in here and it is hard for us to read because there is so much of this that feels like it condemns us. There is so much for us to strive for. And the question I think that deserves reflection from us as we read this is am I listening? Am I being obedient Am I taking in and absorbing the challenge that is posed to me here? So first, let's focus on verses 9 and 10. Flee sin. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Very simply, don't pursue the things of this world because they lead to ruin and destruction and wandering from the faith. These words are written directly to the false teachers whose motivation for gospel ministry, what they thought was gospel ministry, is money. And I think it's helpful for us to clarify that money is not the root of all evil. It's a phrase that we can often hear said. And despite what some will say, there is no inherent evil that is attached to money. Yes, an obsession with money is bad and can lead to evil. It is the root of all sorts of different kinds of evil. But it doesn't make money at its, its root wrong. And verse 17 and 18 later on gives Christians with earthly financial wealth some great advice. It says very simply, don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant with what you have. Don't set your hopes on your wealth. Don't make your wealth the main thing in your life. Don't hope that it's going to save you or give you eternal life one day. But use your wealth to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and to share. Often we can be so negative about money. It can be this awkward conversation, this thing that Christians, a bit of an elephant in the room that people don't really want to talk about. But I think this is a helpful matrix for any of us, wherever you are financially, as we look at our finance. Am I doing good with what I have? Am I being responsible with what I have? 
Am I doing good works with my finances? Am I being generous? And am I sharing? I find that a really helpful reflection. If you want to go back and look at that, verses 17 and 18, a really helpful guide, I think, for how we can use our money. I don't think this passage is directly addressing those that have money, but it is addressing those who have it but need more. They need more in order to be happy. They need more in order to be successful. And that mindset, that that idea that I need more money, I need more and I need more and I'm more, is a complete trap. It leads to bondage, not freedom. And instead of giving the satisfaction that it promises, instead of selling us the Instagram lifestyle that people want, it creates additional desires. And there is a need for those to be satisfied. Instead of providing health and wealth and help, an excess of material things just provides hurts and wounds and things that it will never be able to deliver, though it promises. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This word plunge gives this idea of somebody drowning. Somebody that trusts what they have, has their hopes set in what they have, and is just kind of sailing along. But one day the storm comes and they sink because there's no substance there. On the outside it looks great, it looks fine, but in reality it's not. And the charge from, from Paul to the false teachers, specifically, I think there's kind of two challenges, one to the false teachers, but also those who have wealth, is he's saying don't ever think you can use uh, gospel ministry to make yourselves rich. So I think that asks the question of us is where is our desire set? Is our desire set on wealth, on having more, on getting more, or is our desire set upon Jesus? Because if our desires are set on the things of the flesh, if our desires are set on, and I think finances here for us is an example, it's not kind of the most important thing, but it is one example. What are we to do? Verse 11 tees this up wonderfully. But as for you, Timothy, O man of God, flee these things. Interesting. Temptation, the snares that lead to destruction, sinfulness, temptation. What is our reaction to be? Flee from these things. Do you know my favourite example of fleeing? Uh, I preached on earlier in the year in Genesis 39. Joseph and Potiphar's wife, this beautiful woman that wants to lie down, that wants to take him away to her bedroom. This temptation that would have been huge for a young man. And verse 12 has spoken volumes to me. It says this, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Huge, huge consequences socially for Joseph. imprisonment awaited God had it all in his hands and worked it together for his good he fled Timothy you are a man of God Christian you are set apart flee from these things flee from worldliness you know you see temptation in front of you you see that desire whether it be money or lust or jealousy or gluttony or gossip whatever it is flee from these 
things. Do what you have to do to remove yourself from temptations. Way. Why? Because ultimately it will honour God. I love these words of Romans 6, 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. This morning, friends, are we walking in the newness of life? Do you know the price that the Saviour paid so that we can walk in the newness of life? Do you know this morning that he became sin that knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God? What weight is upon those words that God in Christ Jesus took on sin? The very thing that a righteous God, that a holy God should have absolutely nothing to do with. The one thing the one thing of everything glorious God created, the one thing he has nothing to do with is sin, he took it on. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was crucified with the weight of our sin and our shame on his shoulders so that you might become the righteousness of Christ. That is the price that has been paid for you this morning if you join us and you don't yet know that truth I invite you to consider those words the what is the path of your life where is the path of your life taking you we invite you to the road that is one that is the newness of life it is a very very simple thing it is a life that surrenders all to God it is a road that says I cannot do this life on my own I do not know where I will go. I do not know what hope I have. But I like the sound of this Jesus. I like the sound of this Jesus that came that loves me so much that he came and he died so that I might know him. Flee. Flee sin because of the price that you have been bought with. You know the beauty of Christianity is that our obedience to God isn't coming from a heart that is utterly terrified. Unlike every other religious system in this world where you just obey, you cross your fingers and you hope that you made the final cut. Which in reality for them to be consistent, nobody will ever make the cut in every other religious system. Because there is no grace, there can be no mercy consistently. But our obedience comes because we walk in the newness of life. We don't need to hope for the newness of life because we have the newness of life. Because we live as the lives of people that have the very Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. Working out his plans and his purposes. Working out his plans and his purposes that no matter what you face, no matter what I face, he is working things out, refining us as we go. Flee from sin. And I now want to focus on our third point. Pursue God. I don't know about you, but I like lists. I like checklists. I remember being little 
Uh, I say little, I probably wasn't, I was probably 14. But I, I would go and pack a suitcase for going on holiday. And you know, in my head, if we were going away for two weeks as a family, I could get away with the clothes I was wearing, a pair of swimming goggles, and a change of underwear. And, and that would just get me through. Thankfully, my mother would always check up on me to make sure that I packed more clothes. But, you know, she would come and say, okay, we're going for this many days. Is there a washing machine? Isn't there a washing machine? That always dep- that answers a lot of your questions. But this is what you're going to need to take. This is how much you're going to need. I find that really, really helpful. That checklist is good for me because it helps me work out what I need to do. And, you know, in a similar vein, the Bible isn't some distant, confusing, ambiguous book. It doesn't make statements and then we have to figure it out. It doesn't say go pack for your holiday and then you haven't a clue what to do because you don't have much common sense. But it lays out everything that we need. It lays out everything we need to live God-honouring lives. We're told time and time and time again, pursue God. Wonderful. What does that look like? Thankfully, Paul's listed it here. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness, faith, love, steadfastness and gentleness. I want to go through these. We'll focus on a couple of them more than others. But I want to have a look at these. Do you know, separation from the world without positive growth in Christ is just isolation. Cut between two places. Stuck between two places. Seeking to not be of the world but also not be of God. Therefore, we're trying to be of nothing. Do you know, trying to live this moralistic existence that seems to check off rules and live as a legalist it's not what we are called to do but we are called to cultivate these things these things of the spirit in our lives do you know if we were more focused on these things i am sure we would be known as christians more as people of what we are for than what we are against so let's work our way through this list pursue Righteousness could also mean divine holiness. It means being accepted by God, made possible by God. You know, God's standard of righteousness is defined by God. It is his power that enables it. Unless God is its author, we will never possess righteousness. No amount of man-made effort can ever produce righteousness. Because to be righteous is to be right with God. And a heart that is right with God results in a life that bears fruit. To pursue righteousness means firstly and foremost recognising the sinful state in which we find ourselves. That we cannot please God in our current sinful state. Romans 8.8 So we must turn from trying to justify ourselves by good works and doing good and instead seek the mercy of God. We desire that he would transform our minds. Conform not to the world but conform to the things that God would have so that we can know the will of God. So that we might be conformed into the image of his son. Do you know pre-Jesus People pursued righteousness by keeping God's law, seeking holiness and walking humbly with God. Even then, nobody was justified by rule keeping, but by faith that enabled them to obey God. 
Likewise for us, we are justified first and foremost by the faith that leads us to Christ Jesus. And those who are in Christ must constantly seek God in order to please him. When we pursue righteousness, when we pursue the character of Christ and we desire holiness, we begin to see that he must increase and I must decrease. That the things of the fleshly indulgence become less of a priority to us and the things of Christ become more more important to us. We must avoid the temptation of being self-righteous. We must understand that righteousness comes with a godly humility. We must remember that Jesus said, without me you can do nothing, John 15, 5. We must spend time in the presence of God because when we spend time in the presence of God, we understand more of our own sin and our own shortcomings. Do you know a stained white shirt looks pretty good against a dark wall? But if you take that same stained white shirt and you put it against snow, you begin to see just how dirty it is. It's like us. Sometimes we think, you know what, I'm not as bad as them. I'm a bit self-righteous, but I'm better than them. Things could be worse. But then you compare yourself to the standard of holiness, to the standard of righteousness, and we realise just how dirty we are. That pride, or that self-righteousness, has no room in the presence of a holy God. Pursuing righteousness for us begins with a humble heart that seeks the presence of God. Secondly, we have godliness. Do you know, sometimes I wonder how interested are we in godliness. The Bible tells us endlessly, be holy, be godly, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness. But often that doesn't get our hearts racing. There are things that excite us more. We want to get just as excited. We talk about building projects and that gets us excited. And I think this is a problem in our wider evangelicalism, this issue of we tend to get excited more about outward actions rather than our personal renewal, our personal repentance towards God. And I guess the question is, does godliness get us excited? Verses 7 and 8 of 1 Timothy 4 have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I think there are some a couple of points that can, can keep us from being excited by godliness. And I think one of those things is an attitude that says, okay, my sin isn't as bad as other people, therefore the consequences aren't that great. So we plod through our life, living lives that aren't particularly godly, that aren't particularly seeking righteousness or holiness, but we say, I'm not as bad as other people, I'm okay, I'm not sinning in any massive way. I've not killed anybody. So surely I'm okay. Rather than seeing and understanding how abhorrent all sin is to God. And really understanding the shame and the sin that we put on Christ's shoulders with our sin. 
That doesn't just mean massive things, big things that we see in other people. But first we must address the things in ourselves. And I think as well, we don't like confrontation. We don't like rebuke. We don't like people telling us we're wrong. And I think so much of our culture is going to avoid these things at all costs. But they are so, so important. They are so important. Our culture cries, oh, don't say that, you're judging me. But instead we should be saying, coming to people genuinely and genuinely receiving things like that. Genuinely receiving rebuke so that we may grow, so that we may learn. Do you want to grow in your godliness? Be obsessed with the presence of God. Do everything in the presence of God. Be mindful of everything that you do. And know that God is with you in everything that you do. In every situation we walk into, would we pray? In every situation we walk into, would we be conscious that God is with us? Would we constantly be evaluating things from God's perspective? Would we look at every situation, not first running to our social media feeds, running to the news, running to family, our friends, our social opinion, but first would we start with God? The Bible says that God is always true, even if it makes everyone else a liar. If we want to pursue godliness, the scriptures must override our own ideas and our own opinions, no matter how hard that might be. Feel free to try and challenge God on something, but it's never going to end well for you. The Bible must be our standard and godliness requires this commitment from us that says the word of God is authoritative for all things it is true full stop and whatever the consequences are for me socially I will stick by that this is something that is going to get harder and harder for us going forward in our country I think we can see that fairly clearly but we must be committed to the word of God that is how we will grow in our godliness to learn the things of God knowing that they're true committed to them faith I'll be shorter on these ones don't worry faith Galatians 2.20 I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me I imagine words like those being spoken by Anna the widow that we looked at last week in Luke chapter 2 do you? Do you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you? Do you live in a state of utter dependence upon God? I love those examples last week of the women that are utterly, wholeheartedly devoted towards God. Or we have the example of Paul, this great man of faith that would stop at nothing to preach the good news and pursue a life of holiness. Love, the great definition of love we find in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it doesn't always get its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it doesn't rejoice at bad things, but it rejoices at the truth, it bears with, it believes all, it hopes all, it endures all, and love never ends. This is the standard of love. We read this primarily at weddings as a lovely bit of love poetry, which is wonderful, but that's not its intention. We should read this and instead of kind of going, oh, that's nice, we should look at this and it should really leave us quaking, thinking, my goodness, this is the standard of love 
that God has. How do I love in relation to that? Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you not boast? Is there no arrogance to be found within you? Do you not rejoice at wrongdoing even when it is somebody you may not like? Do you bear with? Do you endure all things? This is the standard of love. If we want to pursue God, if we want to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, steadfastness and gentleness, we must love and love the way that God calls us to love. This stuff is hard. This stuff won't get us liked. This stuff won't make us just blend in and fit in to life. Because some of this stuff is hugely countercultural. This is hugely countercultural in a world that says, me, 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 I, 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 I come first. Because this is literally the complete opposite. This puts everybody else first. This is agape love, a sacrificial love for the sake of others. It seeks to give and not gain. Steadfastness, patience, resilience, endurance. How do you meet hardship? How do you meet trial and temptation? Again, as we looked at last week, women that have been through such hard circumstances, have been through such heartbreaking difficulty, threw themselves down at the cross of Christ. Threw themselves down in the presence of God and worshipped Him. Stick with it when the going gets tough. The going gets tough. That may be where some of you are this morning. Keep going keep immersing yourself in the presence of God and finally gentleness gentleness is not weakness gentleness is a marvellous thing but it is power under control courageous endurance without gentleness can make a person a tyrant would we be marked by our gentleness in a culture that is so ungentle and I just want to finish with the words of verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight. I love these words from John Monsell, the 19th century hymn. Run the straight race through God's good grace. Lift up thine eyes and seek his face. Life with its way before us lies. Christ is the path. Christ is the prize. Why? Why does any of this matter? Why does it matter if we flee sin? Why does it matter if we pursue this stuff? Why does it matter if we fight the good fight? What the heck is the point in any of this? Why is any of it relevant? Verses 15 and 16 tell us he who is the blessed and the only sovereign the king of kings and the lord of lords who alone has immortality who dwells in an inapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see to him be honour and eternal dominion I don't know how you want to serve your life but I want to serve my life in the presence of the one who is blessed sovereign the king of kings the Lord of Lords, the one alone who has immortality, who dwells in such holiness it is like an approachable light that no one is holy enough to see on earth. That, 
that is why this matters because that is who our God is friends flee from sin friends chase pursue follow do what we have to do to pursue righteousness godliness faith love steadfastness and gentleness would this be the mark of each and every one of us because he is worthy he is so worthy and he is so holy how can we respond in any other way how can we respond half-heartedly to that god this god the king of kings and the lord of lords who humbled himself became man humbled himself to the point of death death on a cross for the sake of your sin and shame all of this matters because of who our god is if our god wasn't these things all of this would be utterly irrelevant but this is who our god is i love just to finish those words of verse six godliness with contentment is great gain would we be people who submit to authority so that we can live peaceful and God-honouring lives? Would we flee from our sin knowing that all of our sin is an utter abomination in God's eye? And would we pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness and gentleness? And would we not be afraid to fight the good fight? Why? Because he is blessed. Because he is sovereign because he is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Immortal One, the Eternal One. Let's pray. Oh God, how good you are. God, how good you are and how unworthy we find ourselves. But God, you bring us in. Through your Son, Christ Jesus, through his work at Calvary, through your eternal plan to redeem man to yourself. You gave your son. You stepped down from heaven. From the riches that surrounded him. So that we might know you. So that we might walk in the newness of life. And be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Lord how unworthy we are and how glorious you are. Sovereign one, king of kings, lord of lords. The mortal eternal one. Lord, we bow before your throne. We thank you for who you are. For all you do. For the ways that you watch over us. The ways that we do not even know. God, forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for the times that we do not love like we should love. For the times that we do not love like you love us. Lord, forgive us for the times when we are self-righteous rather than pursuing the righteousness of God. Lord, forgive us the times that we make idols more important than you, whether it be money or other things. And Lord, help us through your spirit to pursue you with every ounce of our being. Because when we stand in that place, meeting with you face to face, the only thing that matters the only thing that matters is you as everything else will pale into insignificance Lord we thank you Amen